Welcome to the Unhooked Podcast, hosted by author, writer, and recovery advocate, Annie Highwater. This is a podcast of real conversations and true stories from those who have been impacted by and overcome personal adversities, including your host. The goal of the Unhooked Podcast is to take a deep and hopeful look into the experiences related to addiction, alcoholism, grief, mental and emotional health, family dysfunction, codependency, conflict, and other types of personal struggle. The good, the bad, the dramatic, the real areas of life that all of us face. You will hear wisdom from people who fought to persevere through pain, circumstances, and are doing the work to recover. You can contact Annie by emailing annieunhooked at gmail.com. And now, enjoy the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. I am back today with Brenda Stewart, founder and director of the Addicts Parents United, an organization that is online that gives lots of information and support to parents who have a child that has suffered with the disease of addiction, whether they are in active use or in remission. And she also has a page for grandparents raising their grandchildren because they have a son or daughter in active use, as well as a page for the survivors of loss. Brenda has done a lot of work in the community for families who are affected by someone's addiction or as I would I usually call the entourage those kind of sitting on the sidelines suffering so that said we just have a pretty quick recovery 101 kind of like a class if you haven't been to meetings or you're maybe new to the situation although um, if you're listening it's probably been in your face for a while we just kind of wanted to wrap up a couple of points on the podcast today. So welcome on and thanks for coming again. Thank you. You do so much work and really you're who I turn to most of the time when it comes to expertise and who do I send a parent to? Where do I direct somebody? Um, because there is no real right or wrong way to, you don't get good at handling it. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, that said, one of the first questions or topics I wanted to cover was why it is so important for the family member to recover. You know, you think about somebody who's in active use, everybody's major goal is they need to get into treatment. They need to go to rehab. They need to do the work. But you've got all of these family members on the side. Um, I think they say for every person that's been affected by addiction, they affect 15 or more people. Why is it so important for those people on the sidelines to work their own recovery? Well, what I found, of course, I didn't realize this early on, was I really didn't even understand the disease itself. Yeah. And I really believe when you first find out, really getting educated on this disease to understand uh, that it affects us in ways that most people don't understand when, you, when you're a parent, understanding that, it's, and this is something that's a process, it takes time mm-hmm. to really grasp because we've usually been in denial for a while. Right. We usually haven't, we didn't want to look at it. Or maybe didn't know what we were dealing with and then who we're getting information or turning to for counsel or advice has no idea either. And then you might speak to somebody that has not been affected. And so you right. hear, well, you got to do this and you got to do that. And unless you've lived it as a parent, I really don't think you can really grasp what we truly do go through. No, I don't think so. So I think getting educated, first off, is really, really important. Understanding if we're going to preach it. Right. If we're going to talk the talk, we have to be willing to walk the walk. In other words, we have to be willing to go out and get the help and support we need 
you know, just as we're preaching to our kids to do. I mean, yeah. we have to be able to do the same thing. Right. I remember thinking, you know, my I'm the, I'm the one that's responsible. You know, I'm the one that's making the right choices, you know, according to what I thought, because I did, my behavior wasn't kind of causing turmoil. If my son or my mother, because both were in active use at the same time with prescriptions, if they would just get it together and do the right thing, my life would work out. It's not about what I need. And you have really, it's hard to start understanding I have a part in this. And I don't mean a part that you're causing it or creating it or you're in the wrong somehow, but I've got a part in the sickness too. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, for me, there was kind of a an awakening as to where I was mentally. Mm -hmm. When my son went off into recovery, um, I've had addiction around my entire life, and that's, you know, I share that openly in my book and and all my work. But I'd, um, about 20 years ago, gone to a Naranon meeting, and it spoke right into situations I had dealt with. And then I just really never went back, went on with life, didn't didn't decide not to go back or whatever. But um, when my son went in to recovery, he kind of goes off into the sunset and starts doing the work, and he's doing better. And I was a lunatic. Mm -hmm. I was so highly triggered. I couldn't deal with a rude cashier or scary traffic or you were stuck. Yeah, I was stuck. And that there, it, I know we've talked about it before the fear and the nostalgia you go through and the sadness and sorrow and the, all of the emotion, it's primal and it changes. It does something to you, to your chemistry as much, I believe as addiction does to them. Absolutely. And the stigma doesn't help. Right. Because we're afraid to talk to people. Yeah. Because we're afraid that it was, I mean, we think it's our fault. In the beginning, most people, most parents feel that they must have done something for this to happen. But as you really get educated, you understand, or most do, that this isn't our fault. No. You know, that it's a brain disease. Right. And whatever turned it on and ignited that monster to come alive in your family um, is, is what got you here. And right. honestly, once you find yourself in recovery, I know we say often and we'll say at the end, that's where the gift is. I, I think it's been a gift in my life that it's led me into recovery. And to, it opened up my eyes to generational stuff I needed to work on, areas of my own life. And it introduced me to people I would have n- not met otherwise. Who have ended up being, to me, my greatest friends. Right. I mean, I me truly well. believe... As crazy as it may sound to many people, through my sons having this disease, uh, my life has changed. And it's changed in ways that have really been a blessing in many ways in the essence of I've really come to know myself. I've really had to work and look at myself, look at me. And that's something that most people don't even fathom, that they have to look at themselves in this. Because I was as sick, if not sicker than my kids, so caught up in thinking that I could control their lives or their addiction or their mental illness. And I had to understand that that was out of my control, but I did have control of myself. Right. And that's really hard for people to grasp. And it takes a lot of recovery work, I think, for us to truly understand that. But there is life no matter what the circumstances after this. I mean, we can get better just like they can get better. We can go into remission just as they yeah. can. You know, we it's can a relapse lifelong. too. Absolutely. <laughs> and we do it. Yeah. 
I think our side of the house, like you said, we can be as sick, we can be crazier. We get triggered, we go into um, PTSD or the term for it when it's chronic stress versus a one-time traumatic event is complex PTSD. We experience depression. Um, we become under the influence of emotion and can't be reasoned with. If you think, have you ever tried to talk a mother out of, you know, maybe searching in different areas and neighborhoods for her son? You cannot reason with someone who is drunk on that emotion. Right. Absolutely not. And I, I truly think that most parents that have been going through this in one way or another have some type of PTSD, yeah. especially long term. You know, my sons probably started dabbling at 16, 17 years old. They're now 34 and 36, you know. Right. I've seen my son on life support. I've seen my son in various psych units. Yeah. The stress and the emotions that you have uh, affect you. Right. You know, I watched a movie last night with my grandkids and there was a young boy on life support and it, it triggered me wow. just in sadness. Yeah. But also knowing that my son did pull through that. But still, it has an effect on you. And that's why we have to work so hard on ourselves and really, you know, figuring out that we have control over ourselves and us getting in a different place and figuring out how to love them without expectations. Yeah, and but, that's tough. But with boundaries. And yeah, it's really tough. It's right. a process. It really is. Joe would say. It's yeah. a process. <laughs> Joe from Naranon. Um, yes. Yeah, that's, that, it is a process. And I, I did a training, of, a trauma training a couple of months ago that talked about what happens to your brain when it goes into that limbic mode. Say you're driving to work and it's your normal route and all of a sudden a dump truck's headed toward you. Your brain, there's a, like a, an area of your brain that's somewhat a police officer and it shuts down other areas. So you're not, you no longer are aware of music playing, if you spill hot coffee in your lap, you are aware of breaks, turn, save myself. And if you go through those moments when, and I had plenty of them when I would get so caught up, hostile, afraid, terrified, upset that I would go into that limbic mode, it does something to your brain pattern. I mean, it causes damage, damage that can be undone, but we are tremendously affected. And when you're living like that for a long time, it has long-term effects. Yeah, and you're not not only your mental health, but also yeah. your physical health. I mean, I've known parents that have had heart attacks. Yeah. I've known yep. parents that have ended up in mental health facilities themselves, you know, because this is very traumatic. Right. But it doesn't have to be. Right. Yeah. We can work our way into a different place. Right. Which reminds me, we have a couple of um, parent questions to weave in. One of them asked, um, what, how do you deal with the fear and heartache? So let's just start there. This is a parent who has a son that's been in active use for a while, and she's come to terms with, I can't deny this or blame this on anything else. This is what it is. How do you deal with the fear and the heartbreak that comes up as a result? For me, it all began with uh, finding support, you know, with other yeah. people that truly understood, whether that be online, like one of our groups, or going to a face-to-face meeting, or finding a counselor. I did all of it. Yeah, all of it. I did all of it, absolutely, because I knew I couldn't do it by myself. So I I think finding support is the the first and most critical thing that you can do. Yeah, I think so too, and I think you have to, I did kind of a patchwork. You have to find what works for you. I couldn't just have somebody tell me, sit and do yoga, and that'll work out your frustration, (laughs) because sometimes I'm losing my mind. Mm. I couldn't calm down enough, and it would trigger me to worse. So I had to, sometimes it was support from someone close to me that understood 
or phoning a friend, somebody like you guys on the phone list or going to a meeting or, I mean, it's just, you have to find what's going to bring you back to a place of sanity and you got to do it often because again, it's a process. It's like, I can, I compare it to weight loss. Mm. You didn't get here overnight. You're not going to get that under control overnight. Even though we want to. Right. Yeah. We're not going to. Right. Absolutely. It's not possible. No. Um, And there's a difference between pain versus suffering. I know you've heard that. Can you Mm -hmm. describe an example or um, define that? I think about like we we both know someone who has recently lost a child, a young man, um, a young Mm -hmm. athlete, an unexpected overdose death. And we know that father had been in the rooms with us for a while. Mm -hmm. And we also have experienced going to see somebody speak who had lost a son roughly the same time frame, but hadn't really worked a program or done any type of work on themselves. Did you notice a difference between the two? Because I sure did. Huge difference. Huge difference. You know, I think from the gentleman that we're speaking of being in the rooms for so long and really mm-hmm. working on himself and his program allowed him to have a different kind of relationship with his son. Yeah. And I think that was huge. Loved him as he was, even Absolutely. up to that point. right? Absolutely. And I, I really do feel that it really comes back to us. Yeah. And us truly working, and many people don't get it, but it's us truly working on ourselves, self-care. Yeah. Because a lot of times when... We start getting better. And people say, what do you mean by we start getting better? Well, I mean, I go to counseling every week. I go to face-to-face meetings every week. I run a page where I'm continually trying to give back what I've learned through many years. Like yeah, I you're said. like in the flow at all times of it. Right. Right. And I think all of that keeps me sane, yeah. you know, by working my program. Right. I think that um, when we pay attention to our side of the street, it also helps you let go of the obsession. And the difference between the two fathers, and I certainly, I I don't know how anybody handles grief. Everyone's different. But I've definitely noticed the difference in a lot of people that have worked a program. Um, There wasn't such an obsession of what I could have done differently and what my son did right. Or maybe um, I want to prove that my son wasn't your typical bad person and he was still stuck in that versus the other one was like I loved him as he was Mm -hmm. I'm doing the work on myself Mm -hmm. I know where to turn to stabilize and I mean it's terrible grief but there is a way to go through pain without the additional suffering mentally right and I think that's what working a program gives you yeah I agree with you totally and I think there lies a huge difference right and um, a program could be 12 step Naranon parent support whatever it is just get into a program and start working it because I think I think it'll save your sanity. Mm-hmm. Well, really, what it comes down to is you're the only one that can save your sanity. And if you choose not to do what we need to do for us to mm-hmm. do better, then we're not going to get better. There are people that have been going through this for years and have done everything I just said, but they haven't moved forward. Very few that haven't moved forward, but I have seen that. Right. And then I've seen people that have really excelled because they've dug into it. You know, like... Our kids, when they're in recovery, they're really digging into it. Parents can do the same thing. We can dig into it, too, and we have to. You know, we have to do the work. If we want to get in a better place, we have to do the work, too. That's why, you know, we preach self-care so much. It's so Mm -hmm. important. And that can look like anything. It's not just bubble baths and going hiking. That can be a therapy session or reading a book that pulls your focus back off of what you're obsessing over. Right. Um, I have another parent that asked, this is always interesting, how do I detach and not enable? And I think that we have probably both come to believe enabling doesn't necessarily create or further addiction. It makes me sick. It keeps me sick, but it's, you know, 
I don't think it can make it better or worse. Right. So what, what's you. your take on, what do you tell a parent that says, am I enabling if they come to you with that? Um, you know, what is enabling? Yeah. You know, there's what is tons it? of different kind of <laughs> And <laughs> it's such a, it's almost become a dirty word to throw yeah. at people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, if we can't make it worse or better. Right. Uh, and you have to come and believe that. Right. But we can help ourselves. And if I'm doing something that I don't want to do for my sons, uh, and I'm doing it anyway, then for me, that's enabling them. Right. Because I'm not allowing them to to do it themselves. If yeah. I'm saying, what I'm saying to them when I'm doing it for them is you're not capable. Right. You don't. Ha- I, I'm not giving you the dignity to get the victory here or, or face a consequence or achieve something on your own. And usually, right. you know, what I've seen with my sons, it took a lot of things to happen for them yes, to get to lot. that place. Right. Yeah. I found with like, I always thought I wasn't the enabler because my mom kind of was and interfered a lot. So I thought I was the enforcer. <laughs> so I'll just make everything. I'll create misery, raise his rock bottom to where he meets it faster. And that doesn't work either. You no. stay just no. as sick. Right. But I think it comes down to... A, that's why self-care and working on yourself is so important because your motives. Mm-hmm. What is my motive for doing this for my son or creating this consequence or whatever? Is it because I'm trying to force the outcome? Is it because, am, am I doing something, making it easier, giving a ride, paying off this bill so that it creates peace really quick and they love me more? Mm-hmm. You know, it really just comes back to where your motive is because that's where we get sick is in our reasoning right. for why we are responding and behaving. And right. that takes a while to get to that revelation too. Oh, absolutely. But... You know, that's where our boundaries come in. Yeah. You know, not what we're trying to change with them, but what we're trying to work on for ourselves. You know, I'm not going to do this today for you because uh, I've already made plans. I'm not going to change my plans. I love you, but I have to take care of myself. Right. You know, versus, oh, my God, I have to do this right now. i got to change my plans. You know, it was my thinking that changed and got me healthier and and not kept me stuck there. You know, it was me working on me. I remember I've been going to counseling for many, many years, probably 15, 20. I don't even know how many years, but it was walking into that parent support group meeting. I love my counselor. She's wonderful. But being with other parents that were going through the same thing and seeing myself, people that were well, or, yeah. doing, you know, in a different place than I was. Yeah. I mean, all I could do was cry the first meeting mm-hmm. I went into, and they're laughing and cutting up, and I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know what they have, but I want it. Yeah, I want it. And that's why I kept going back, you know, and that's why I started reading the literature and started watching the videos and doing mm-hmm. everything I could because I wanted to be in a better place. And, and then it made me realize... Well, my sons could do that too, but they have to want it like I want it. But I can't do that for them, but I can yeah. do it for myself. And the healthier you, healthier you become, the healthier they can become, and the healthier the situation becomes. I always think it's interesting that I remember walking into my first meeting and someone knew it was, it's a big location and people aren't there for just those Naranon or 12 step or parent support meetings. Someone immediately said, oh, are you here for the Naranon meeting? And I was like, oh my goodness. And, and I've heard people tell the same experience. I went into the, to a building. I was looking for Al-Anon, whatever works. For me, it's Naranon. Um, how do you know? I think it's because when we first come in, we have that look. Yeah. And for me, I was strung out and terrified. My eyes were bulging. You know, I had, my stomach was always in knots. I was answering my phone, whispering all the time, triaging problems or trying to just breathe because there was some kind of high level, level 10 stress at all times. And I walk in 
and I've seen so many people walk in and that's just, there's a look to it. Right. And then you see them come in and you see somebody who maybe had that look a couple months ago and they're like, oh, they've got that look, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. we start to give and take with each other, you right. know, and, Absolutely. and that's when I, it's interpersonal and you kind of help heal each other. Again, we're no different than our children. They go right. into meetings, they get sponsors, they yeah. work a program. The people that are in remission are helping our children going into or vice versa our kids are helping others coming in or they just see them on the street and say hey you know i'm here for you if you need me just like we do with parents it's really no different it's really no different right it's really no different we just think it is i mean Mm -hmm. it's just a different substance that we're kind of well you talk about you know our family getting better Mm -hmm. which it can i remember about six months into the meeting my son looked at me, you know, I didn't allow him in the house at the time because he was actively using. I was a freaking nightmare mess doing <laughs> everything, you know. Yeah. At this point, spent many, many thousands of dollars thinking I can send him away and fix him. Of course, that did work, but, you know, I'm sitting out in the garage with him. I just wanted to lay eyes on him. So, yeah. you know, I had him come over, uh, sitting out in the garage and talking to him, and he said, are you, you're still going to those meetings, aren't you? Because I was changing. Yeah. And he said, I think it's a cult. You know, because <laughs> I was starting to say no. Yeah. I was starting to understand that I'd take care of myself, which I never did before. Right. I was always so focused on him and my other son that I never looked at me, you know. And mm-hmm. I think we have to start looking at ourselves here. Well, that's the only way to get healthy. It's like right. somebody was telling me the other day that she was asked, well, what do you want to do about a situation? And she said it was such a revelation because she thought, I don't do anything I want to do. I do what I have to do. Right. I'm the, and because you really think you're driving this cart, but you're as out of control as any of it. And as you said earlier, if our kids are in a different place, working a program, getting better, and we're still where we were, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times our kids don't want to be around us because we're still back there. We're still yeah. stuck. Yeah. You know, and they don't want to deal with that. They worked hard to get in a different place. Which is another reason, you know, when someone goes into treatment or detox, it's really uncomfortable for them to be sent right back to that family system that has done no work. Absolutely. I believe that it has to be, you know, depending on the age of the individual, whether they're walking them back in their home or not. For me, that wasn't something that was going to work. You know, my my sons are adults. Yeah. You know, they wanted a place to stay and they were working a program. Yes, I did help get them, you know, help with paying for sober living in the beginning. But then, you know, I had to have my boundaries and stipulations. It wasn't an open checkbook, but that took me time. Yeah, it does take time. Um, I have another parent that says, and who has not lived through this, my son says vicious things to me if I don't give him money. So I always do. How can I get stronger? I mean, I think, first of all, I think that's not personal, and but you don't know that. When you're going through this and maybe your friends or family haven't experienced it or nobody's talking about it, this is just thrown into you and you're experiencing dynamics like this, you don't really know how, no one's prepared for how to handle this and you don't really know where to grasp for how, how do you handle, you know what I mean? Like there's no, you're not prepared for it and, and, and you're not certainly able to understand that this really isn't personal. It's just a dynamic of the disease and taking care of yourself and kind of getting educated about that what is I, what makes what you What I allow will continue. Right. You know, we're setting up the pattern. If we're continually doing something because they act out, then they know that if they act out, they're going to get their way. Yes. So we're setting up a program to say, this is how you get what you want. You act out. 
So they're not only probably acting out to you, but if they're wanting something from somebody else, they're acting out. So how are we really helping them? Yeah. You know what I mean? We're just content. We're, we're as much a part of the disease and the cycle and the sickness as they are. Absolutely. I, I, I don't, I think it takes a while to understand that, especially when it first thrust onto you. I remember the first few times my son would say terrible texting things to me or, <laughs> no, you know, no. phone calls. And I would be so sick to my stomach and sick hearted. It was like PTSD dealing with that. I actually went through this period of time where intentionally every day from four to six, I would turn off all my devices and either work on work or go do something for me. I had to because life was crazy. And a couple times when I turned my phone back on, I watched our whole dynamic there was a message hey what are you doing can you give me a ride here or can I can you help me with money for this or that and then there'd be like where are you at why are you not answering you're so selfish I I hate you like you're not gonna hear from me again and then it would be like sorry I just got frustrated I worked it out hope you yeah (laughs) I mean I watched that whole and it really taught me a lot that I just was stepping away and taking care of me I'm I don't have to be a part of that craziness well it's our Reacting, Yeah. You know, my son would call and say terrible things to me. And I would, in the beginning, freak out, same as you, you know, threatening all kinds of things. You know, what am I going to do? It made me insane. But the healthier I got, the more I realized that I didn't have to answer that phone. Or if things started getting heated on the phone, I could say, you know, I'm sorry you're not going to speak to me this way. I love you and I'll talk to you later and hang up. And then when he texts and calls a million times right after that, you know, just ignore it. And then mm-hmm. later on, go back, you know, maybe the next day and answer the phone, yeah. per se. But, you know, once I showed him that that is not something that I was going to be okay with, it stopped. I'm not going to be a part of it. Right. Right. It's like letting a storm go by. But, I mean, I think we just jump right back into that and think that we have to. And it's it, sometimes revelation that... I don't have to be a part of this. Right. I shouldn't say it stopped because it would help again on occasion. Right. But I knew what I had to do for me to be okay. And yeah. really, that's what I had to go and look at truly is what am I okay with here? Yeah. And you I've know. seen kids do that that aren't in active use. I know I had a friend whose son would send her hate texts if she didn't bring him chicken nuggets in a certain frame of time. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was working a program to get free of this stuff and I would watch her run, run off and do that. And I would mm-hmm. think, you need this program. Like, <laughs> And that's probably the best gift any parent could give to themselves. Yeah. Truly. Yeah. You know, really, if you really want to give a gift to yourself, really look at getting self-care. Because bottom line, without that, the insanity Everybody's will continue. Crazy. You yeah. know, and you're going to get sick physically. You're going to mm-hmm. get sick mentally. Those kind of things are happening, you know. I wasn't any good for anybody in my family. Right. And nothing changes if if nothing nothing changes. changes. Right. (laughs) Which leads me to another parent question. Um, And it's funny. I remember that a mom had been in the room once, and this reminds me of her. She said that every day she would ask herself, okay, who's here? Who's high? Who hates me? And she would wake up in her own home. She would have her son there, the son's girlfriend, the son's friends, and they were calling the shots. And it was just, I mean, she was coming to the rooms desperate to come out of her codependency and for direction. And how do I go back home with, I've got, it's just taken over and taken control. And I think little by little, it's a process that it gets out of control as much as it's a process to heal it. Little by little, you can find yourself swimming in the midst of craziness like that. Mm -hmm. And how do you get ahead of it then? I mean, you just got to start stepping out of it. So we had a mom write in that said, I'm having trouble getting unhooked 
from my son's roller coaster, which I love because that's part of the subtitle of my first book, Unhooking right. from the Roller Coaster. Yes. This morning, he texted me that he was going to kill himself and he wanted help. He asked to come to my house. I said yes. And long story short, he did not want help other than money, as always. I'm going to block him again, not knowing what else to do. Of course, he will use other people's phones to contact me and it won't end. What should I do? I'll let you take that one away. <laughs> well, first off, she knows it's not going to end because she hasn't really put a stop to it. And I know. I've spoken to this mother also. And what I told her what I did, uh, because I went through you know similar things, son threatening suicide. So, you know, they have what they call a CIT officer, every police department, and it's a crisis intervention team. What they do is they focus, they're, they're the one that they sent out for the mental health part of it. Because, okay, this is huge. I'd never even heard of this. I love that this information's going out. Yeah, so yeah. it's called a CIT officer. So when you call them out, they're going to assess your son, daughter, whatever, or even if you've just made the phone call, you're making a record. And it got to the point that when I told my son, you know, I'm going to call, you know, I can't handle not doing anything because if I do nothing and you do this, then, you know, I have to do what I'm okay with. And this is what I'm okay with. So the last time you told me that, and I said, well, I'm going to call for the CIT officer. He already knew what was coming. He's like, Mom, I'm not really suicidal. I'm just really pissed right now. Oh, yeah. I said, well, wow. when you say that to me, it triggers me to know that this is what I have to do. Yeah. And so it stopped. Yeah. Because he knew that he couldn't use that to get what he wanted. Because basically, that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to get something out of me. He was trying to get me to a point that I would do something for him, mm-hmm. you know. I, I've experienced but I don't it think a that lot, you take too. it lightly, you know. No, and I had a therapist tell me that threat of suicide is the ultimate form of manipulation. Right. And you definitely want to take it serious. I think it's a great idea to call a CIT officer or some, you know, higher authority. But it when it's being used as a tool and the other side of it is, if you don't do this, I'll do that. Right. There's usually manipulation in play. Absolutely. And... Not, you know, that's what it was with my son. Yeah. It was total manipulation. He didn't want to hurt himself. He just wanted to get what he wanted to get. But that's not saying that I didn't take it seriously. Right. It's just they up the odds and we all go, we're off to the races. But as long as they know that works, right? they're going to continue to do it. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, we have to figure out what works for us. For me, that's what worked for me. And, yeah. it, you know. And it's a process. And it is Figure a Figure that out. Which is, reminds me of another threat that along with suicide, sometimes I know a lot of parents have been threatened with, if I don't, if you don't give me $200 right now, that my drug dealer or mm. a group, a gang or whatever is going to come kill all of us. They the said mafia. Yeah. The, I, was, the I had a mom mafia. write to me and say, the mafia is coming here. And later she wrote back and said, well, the mafia turned out to be a 16-year-old classmate of his that wanted money for his grandmother's pills. Mm. So, again, you have to take the threat serious and involve somebody. However, this is often, and I find almost usually, manipulation again to oh, get an outcome. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I remember a story one of the moms was telling me about, you know, her son called and said, they're going to beat me up. you got to take this money, put it in this gas cap, blah, blah, blah. Well, <laughs> after her son got sober, you know, in remission, he let her know that they were sitting back behind the other car watching, laughing, oh my you know, God. because they knew that they could get to her. They yeah. knew that they could manipulate her, you know. So we have to really look at all that. Is this really true? Yeah. If it's really true and somebody's going to come after me, I need to be calling the police. Right. And I don't need I to get, go take these steps of ransom money to... 
Right. And again, that shows them that that's not a tool they can use. But again, right. it's a process, you know? Yeah, and I think in the midst of that, it's not only a learning process, it's a process of managing the emotions it causes because right. it stirs you. I'm telling you, I will have cortisol and adrenaline splashing out of me when those moments hit. Oh, I, hell. I mean, <laughs> excuse the language, but I've taken my son down to the FBI. Oh my but, you know, from the insanity. He was in total psychosis and, you know, the mafia is going to kill him, blah, blah, blah. You know, the story. Yeah. And I'm not trying to undermine because he truly believed it at that time and his state of mind and his psychosis. But I was crazy enough to not really understand at that time, it's been many, many years ago, that it was part of the psychosis and what he really needed was a hospital. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I wasn't healthy enough to understand that. So, you know, I, I... I was off the charts. Yeah. We just jump right on that roller coaster, not right. knowing we don't have to be a part of it. Or maybe take 90 seconds and call somebody that we know from the support rooms. Right. Call a professional. Call somebody long enough that somebody, they're not going to always give you advice. We don't give advice. Right. But they're going to talk you off the ledge and maybe say, okay, I've dealt with that. Yeah. Or this is how I handled it. And that can completely change the situation. Right. And that's why I say, you know, why I'd have to hang up the phone or I'd have to walk away or I'd have to do something different because I had to calm down. I had to get in a different place myself because I was escalating right along with him. Right. You know, and I think the escalation also keeps them hooked. Yeah. On continuing their, uh, their, whatever they're doing to try to get us to do whatever they want done. Right. You know what I mean? I think they almost... I, I shouldn't say they. I, I think for my Senate, just kept escalating him as I escalated. Right. You know? um, I think I was like, I got drunk on cortisol, I always say. I was so stressed out that, I mean, th- there's just was no reasoning with me either until I stepped off and started working a process. And it, it's nothing that's going to be fixed in a day, but it right. was going to regular meetings, getting in those books, getting a therapist, having somebody to call, taking time alone. You just got to start finding and working a process that pulls you out of that craziness. Absolutely. And I think that's how you do it. Um, Another parent had asked, what what are some of the signs, and I've asked you this before, how do you know if somebody is in active use, you know, especially if you're a new parent that maybe wasn't expecting this or hadn't seen it yet, or that relapse is occurring, because they're kind of similar. What are the signs again? Mm -hmm. Well... First off, I always tell a parent if they if they think it probably is so. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, again, it goes back to us not wanting to believe it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's many signs from you know things coming up missing to depending on their drug of choice, their actions, uh, job or school, how they're doing there. I mean, there's just so many things, and you can find all that information on the internet. You know, all you have to do is Google it. You can Google anything. But, you know, signs to look for. But it's really, you know, in my opinion, you know. You know. You, you're or an you expert a, on your kid usually. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, why are you even looking as you yeah. get to a different place in, you know, your own recovery? Why is it important? Right. You know, what is it your business? Yeah. My kid isn't living with me, but I think he's using it again. I'm going to go drug testing. Why are you doing that? Yeah. What is going to change by you doing that? Right. Do you know what I mean? You just got to speak your truth, speak your peace, do what's healthy for you. And if it's a minor child, absolutely, we have to be responsible parents. And that's different. But once they're over 18, work a program, go to meetings, you know, 
And then, you know, then, you know, I think how to handle those signs. One thing that I would say I would do differently. Um, and this is usually with a minor child. I have people ask me all the time, you know, I have a kid in high school or, you know, a young adult kid and I'm catching them binge drinking or experimenting or things like that. What would you do? And, um, I always say, you know, and I heard Ellen Schoonover speak on this too, as far as speaking in hindsight, what, how she would have handled her son who died of the disease of addiction is that it's not just about punishment, taking the cell phone, taking the car and grounding them. That's not all. It's also about finding help for yourself and for them coming around and supporting them and handling, handling it like a mental health condition too. Mm -hmm. Um, one, I heard a woman who had said she got caught binge drinking at like 15 as a teenager and her mom was in recovery herself and was a therapist. So she took her to five meetings. I think they were AA and NA combined, which is Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. And then she took her to the family's recovery, Naranon Alanon, so that the, that foundation was laid. And she ended up straightening out, but she got really deep in over her head into drugs in college and knew the path back. She had just remembered that. She was introduced to recovery. So that is kind of some of the advice I give if I'm going to give advice. If I would have done it different, I would have that kid in meetings, Go have, bring that kid to open meetings with me so they can see what's around the corner from this drug use because you, it's a very short span of time that they get to just enjoy drinking and drugs without consequences because well, around that corner is completely different and how it affects the family is completely different. Well, here's what I found. Having young grandchildren, which we adopted, um, having a grandson, that I'm, another grandson I'm concerned about, you know, mm -hmm. looking at that age group. Uh, we have had our grandkids in counseling for quite a long time. Yeah. You know. uh, one of our grandchildren goes to a psychiatrist. Um, he's been, because I see the signs, mm -hmm. you know, and when you see the signs of what you've experienced, now you're in a different place. So whether your adult child with these children listen to you or not. Yeah. You're sharing your wisdom. You're sharing what you've learned over time. And again, we don't have any more control over those right. adult children than we do, you know, in remission than we do uh, adult children that don't use or anything else. It comes back to sharing our experience. And I would say anybody, you know, not giving advice, but what we're doing with our grandchildren, we talk about it. We talk about what if somebody offers you something. We talk about, I want you to be able to come and talk to me if something happens. We keep the conversation open in yeah. love. And we also, you know, are doing other things with counseling and, and other things, uh, additional help in school, different things that you can actually do, but you have to look at it. And if you're not looking at it, right. you're not doing it. And if you're not talking about it, and I think one, one thing is that we were always kind of taught that it's like some seedy character is going to come up and offer you drugs and just say no. I was never offered drugs or alcohol by someone that didn't like me right. or someone that was scary, ever. Right. It was always, you know, the cool kid, the right. fun kid, the nice girl, the mm -hmm. cute guy. It's, mm -hmm. you know, I think having those conversations and keeping them open, giving them an escape route, a strategy, and then exposing them to a process of recovery regardless. Yeah, we go through a scenario. Okay, you're at school. And this little boy comes up and says, hey, man, I've been, I, I've been smoking this thing. You know, my parents smoke, whatever, yeah, right. whether their parents smoke or not or whatever. Take a drag of this. You're going to really like it. What would you do? So we do like scenarios. Yeah. So it helps, you know, helps them think about it ahead of time. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that's keeping open lines conversation. Right. I didn't do that with my kids when they were young. I didn't. Didn't have that kind of knowledge to right. even think about it. Yeah. I had 
some of the conversations just because our family was dysfunctional and, you know, my mom had been a church lady addict, but I wasn't prepared for a doctor prescribed situation leading to a tornado. So, I mean, however you get into it, it's how you get into it. It's, it's how you find your process of recovery, I think. Well, so. my thinking was they've seen their dad because my ex-husband uh, at the time that we were married um, had and still has a disease of addiction. He's in long-term remission. But I thought, well, they saw him go through all this. They definitely yeah. would do- I mean, that better. was my lack of <laughs> yeah, knowledge, right. though, because I thought, well, they won't do that because they've seen that. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case. That's not you know? the case. That's not the case at all. No. It's, that is why it's important to get educated and informed and meet people that are either professional or experienced. Um I wanted to then segue into a subject that you and I had a conversation about recently, and I'll just keep this brief, but um, out of nowhere in January, I began experiencing a really strange phenomenon of, um, it's almost like car sickness, but it's driving panic attacks. And I was so astonished by it because I remember thinking, you know, my son's been off, he's out west for six years now. If I was going to have any type of anxiety or panic attack, it would have been when we were in the throes of crazy madness. And it's, you know, relatively peaceful now and now I'm having experiences on the highway to where I almost feel like I'm going to fall out of the car or just wrench the steering wheel too quick and wreck and I'm sweating and my heart's pounding and it's very physical more than it's even mental and emotional but it becomes mental and emotional Um, and I guess it's what I'd had a therapist because you and I have access to them so it's easy to pull them aside in the hallway and just say you know what do you think this is I've had one say it's a panic attack it's almost an after effect of PTSD when it said it might be hormonal because your body goes through physical changes when you've been through extreme stress. Um, So I kind of wanted to bring that up. I actually brought it up in a meeting and I was amazed by the responses. One person said, oh my goodness, I just started experiencing this last year or I never drive the freeway. So um, if we could just kind of go back and forth with that because what's your experience? (laughs) (laughs) As you know, right? when you called me with that, (laughs) I let you know that it's an issue I've been dealing with since I was probably 30 years old. Yeah, that amazes me. Yeah, and you know, I call it baby steps. I've been to counseling for it. I've done all kinds of different things and I will get to a point that I could drive 45 minutes and then something would happen and it would trigger another panic attack and then I couldn't do that again so I got so stressed out about it that even driving down the street was a a chore Mm -hmm. and then I felt like I was a burden because my husband would have to take me places then I had to realize that I had something going on with me no different than anybody else have going on with them. I have got issues with driving. And I think, as you said, a lot of it has to do with stress. I mean, mm-hmm. even though I was 30 when I had my first one, I'd been through a lot of stuff already. Right. You know, with my ex and everything going on there. You know, so I really, you know, and I would get better and then I'd fall back. And But I once I really got to the point to understand that whether I can drive the freeway or not, how far I can drive is really not important. What's really important is my, taking care of myself and yeah, my mental health. Right. You know, and if that means not driving to Newark because I'm afraid, you know, and I know it's mental and I know it's anxiety, then why would I try to put myself through that? You know, I can take baby steps or, or I can use an Uber or my husband can take me somewhere. When I quit beating myself up on it, things got easier for me. Yeah, so 
What is the reason that you think we would try to force ourselves? Is it because, oh my goodness, I can do this. Yes, or I feel like I'm bad or crazy that this is happening. It's it's this judgment, this judgment that's always misjudgment and very shaming. And it's always at the root of why we make wrong, fearful, stupid decisions. Or when somebody says, well, will you meet me here? And I go, well, Uh, can you come (laughs) close to me? And I know they're probably thinking, what in the world? But you know what? I've gotten to a point that I can talk about it. Right. Well, here's the deal. Here's why I would like for you to come to me if you can or come to within where I feel comfortable driving because I have issues yeah. with panic attacks. You know, I'm not, a, I used to be ashamed of it. I'm yeah, not ashamed exactly, of it yeah. anymore. So I think the more we talk about things, so other people that may, may feel that they can't talk about it, understand it's okay to talk yeah. about it. And you know? you're not the only one. We are probably many of us dealing with what you think you are crazy for dealing with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm kind of felt like a fool bringing it up. I was really having a panic attack in the meeting saying, let's bring up this topic. But as a result, it got people talking and I got to hear tips. Um, people that said, I went to therapy about it or some went on medication, some stopped driving. There's no right or wrong. It's whatever works for you. And for me, in certain cases, I have to kind of force myself to take the freeway because I have to so much. However, if I need to pull over or get off and then, uh, you know, there's an, you can pull up on maps and use your app to avoid highways. If I have to switch to that, I'm going to be okay with that. I'm not going to feel stupid or ashamed or embarrassed. And you can pull always, you know, I learned tricks too. You can always pull over, put on your blinkers, you know, take your time. If you can't, you can't. You call a friend. Right. You can always call somebody. And that's another thing that really helped me. Um, My counselor told me to have a toolkit. Yeah. You know, little things that help bring me out of it because it's not just driving on occasion. I will have anxiety attacks. Little things that can help me, which I call my toolkit, like from snapping a rubber band to throw my arm in the air, in the air like a crazy person, whatever yeah. it takes for me right. to try to bring myself back to being okay. Right. And that also includes medication if I need it. So, yeah. you know, I'm okay with that. Right. Whatever it takes. And I have to say, one gift of recovery is when things like this happen, I brought it up one time in a meeting and every meeting I have gone back and I'll tell you, I have fractured family relationships. I just do. I mean, I'm pretty open about that in a non-shaming way. But since I brought it up at that meeting, I have had somebody follow up and ask me, how's it going? I got, I found this book. It reminded me of you. I'm going to send you this video of this song. It's what you do in the downtime before you drive to kind of release stress. That'll prepare you for those moments. I have had one woman I didn't really know very well in the meeting. She's now become a pen pal. She emails me long emails about people and Ted talks and books she read and family members that experienced it and had victory. I mean, that is the gift of a family recovery. I've never had that before. And it's almost been it's almost made me take the adversity of this weird experience and appreciate it because I took it to my recovery process and it just bloomed large. Right. And that's what happens. And, you know, something we talk about in the meetings, you got to talk about it. Yeah. Because if you're not talking about it, you're not really healing yourself. Yeah. Right. Because when you talk about it and, you know, the fastest way to stop a conversation is to say, you know, when you're out in a large group of people and they ask questions and they're all bragging about their kids in college, which is all great. My son's a senator. How's yours doing? Yeah. Right? Well, he's in prison right now. He's sleeping in a car. Or- yeah. But that's, you know, a quick way to turn a conversation around. But through, I, I, I'm not ashamed, you know. Right. I'm not ashamed of any of it. But through having a voice, you know, people ask, what can I do? Yeah. Have a voice, you know, talk about it because that's usually when somebody's pulling you over later on saying, oh my God, I didn't, I had no idea. I've been going through this for years or 
oh, can, can I have your phone number? I'd like to talk to you about something because they don't want to talk about it in public, but that's okay. Yeah. But once we start to share our voice and let them know, there is no reason, no reason at all. The stigma that's around the families is as much as it is around our kids. That's right. And it's as much inside us as it is where we think it's coming from others. Right. So when we start to talk about it, when we start coming out of our shells, when we start getting healthier, that's how we get. You want to know what to do to give back? That's how you give back. Start talking about it. I know you've experienced this too. I've had, especially, I don't get a lot of response publicly on my personal page, but I do a lot on my author page. People are really open and um, just because the content's so raw, but I will have people, they don't like anything I post about it or share anything or comment, but they will send me long messages about, I really appreciate you doing this work. I, I went through detox myself or my wife needs it or my mom died of alcoholism or I've got a son I think is in use. And, and you know, that's okay if you still need to be quiet and you're not there yet. But that is a direct result of us having a voice and some people not being ready yet and how much it's needed to be openly shared. Yeah, I had uh, somebody come up to me at the meeting the other night and I had my wristband on. They said, oh yeah, uh, my son saw that on me and he threw it out the window. (laughs) You know, he doesn't want people... Advertising your page. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it just says the Addicts Parents United has our website on it. But I said, here's how I look at it. I'm not sharing my son's stories. Right. Truly. Yeah, that's I mean, right. yeah, I talk about it. They know I do. But it's really my story to share. Yeah. Because I was sick too, you know, and I, I'm sharing what helped get me in a better place. Yeah. And I think you and I, um, and um, it's just so funny because we both have such a passion to do this work and it's so real and it's so raw and it kind of consumes everything. Um, even when I had this first experience on the freeway, my first thoughts were, oh, I've got to do research and talk to a therapist and put together a blog for anybody <laughs> yeah. else going through it because I want to make it about recovery. Because, I mean, we're just so recovery-minded right. and serving it back because I think once you experience momentum and healing and sanity and serenity and the love and support of this community, mm-hmm. having a recovery community, as well as the newness of life it gives you. And then when you start doing the work, there is, it's like, a, it's streaming live all the time passion. But even with that, we still have to do that self-care and step away on occasion. Yeah. You know, step away from what you do. I have to step away from what I do too, because that's all part of my process of staying healthier. Yeah, because I can get caught up too. I can end up finding myself on a four-hour phone call and then writing a blog and then, you know, rushing to an appointment for coffee with a mom who just found out her daughter's, you know, and before we know it, the day is over and we are spent. Right, right. So we have to remember self-care too. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, And then I just want to kind of wrap it up with... You know, recovery has been such a gift. All of it is. You know, from the awakening that you have this issue in your face and your family to the awareness it then presents that you need to do work to recover and the after effects of how much stress, sorrow, pain, sleeplessness, physical problems it causes all the way into maybe panic attacks or driving anxiety um, and then creating a passion for the work. Um, Really, I just think that all of that wrapped up and on this side of it, even if though we know our sons could relapse or whatever the case may be, I still don't think I would choose any different life. We have friends who rally in this community. Um, I just don't think that there's, I just don't think I would choose a different life than 
what it's brought to me. I know. And Mark and I have both made the comment, you know, we feel blessed as right. crazy as that sounds because it's, even though through all of that, through yeah. every bit of that, it's brought us not it's brought us to a different place in our own lives you know feeling I'm so much more compassionate I mean I didn't even realize I wasn't but I mean the things I see in myself now versus back when I was like insane when and I'll you know insanity doing the same thing over and over again expecting a different result the friends that I've met the community that I've been associated with the I mean, just everything has brought my life much fuller. Right. You know, I'm, I am, as you said, you know, I'm I'm blessed to have the friends and the family and the community that I have. And I don't think, I think without this, there wouldn't be that. I don't either. And I think, you know, when, when you've gone through this with a child, there is nothing that's been unsaid between my son and I, whether it's been every argument, every issue, every experience or memory, every accusation, along with everything we're grateful for and love about each other because it made the time precious. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that we would be as real and raw. He had a a young girl come into his life about two years ago and he was telling me how, you know, I don't think she's ever even smoked a cigarette. And the only thing she's ever been through is like her uncle got divorced or something. And I said, well, you know, they ain't like us, you know, right, right. <laughs> you know, they're not like our family, but I mean, there's an openness and a genuineness and, and I'm not saying that's not in other families, but when you've been through the nightmare of addiction and done the work on both sides, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like from that fire, I feel like we were absolutely reborn. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I agree with you totally. How many uh, other parents actually sit down and talk to their, you know, children about their funerals? Yeah. I mean, that's a hard one. But, you know, through all that growth, you really learn a lot about each other. You really do. And really nothing's on the table anymore. Right, right. (laughs) So I'm going to wrap it up with the last question. Um, If you have a coworker that maybe you know is coming in stressed out or dealing with a child caught up in um, addiction, or maybe they're married to somebody or any family member, it just, I think it tends to be a lot more intense when it's a son or daughter. It's just, it's a new dynamic. Right. It's a different dynamic. Yeah. So if you have a sister, brother, friend, family member, if you're watching somebody suffer because they are impacted by an addiction, um, what, this was a question that said, what should I say to my best friend whose son is up and down with crazy addiction? Well, she's got a son or daughter herself. She really knows. All she has to say is, you know, you know what I'm going through. Can I give you a hug? And I'm here yeah. if you want to talk. Right. You know, if she doesn't or he doesn't have a family member that has the disease, Again, you know, I'm sorry for whatever you may be going through. I'm here if you want to talk. But it's about listening, I think, and yeah. showing compassion. Yeah, and just being a friend. And don't give advice, especially right. if you don't You don't have to live with the results of that advice. Right. You know, I right. had a friend that would always tell me, you just need to cut him off and detach. But this friend had a three-year-old in bed with their teddy bear every night. And right. you, I mean, you just can't give advice. Tell them to go get comfort and advice. Right. But you can't do oh, that. Oh, and you have many, many people that try to do that, especially if they don't have children you know when you live it then you talk to me right walk in my shoes come back and call me right right and I think that um the best advice to give anyone is to self-care find books you can read my books or there's plenty of books that are available now even right. more so than when we were in it um and find great videos out there and I mean. podcasts and all of that yeah. yeah and doctor um dr landers has a great video right, out yes. there addiction 101 uh, or no 
Dr. Landers is a squirrel brain. Yeah, that's right. Dr. Labor is Addiction 101. Those are two great videos that we tell all of our members to watch. It really helps explain the disease. Get yourself to a Naranon meeting, get a counselor. Yes. You can look those up online, and there, um, there's not a lot of Naranon meetings, but they're in our community, and there is some sort of meeting mm-hmm. available everywhere. And in a few places, you can find parent-only support group meetings, which is my favorite, you know, because it's just parents, so we all have that common bond. Um, just uh, self-care is really, really important in all this, and, and know that you're not alone. There's many of right. us out there that you can reach out to. You know, there's support online with our group. There's many meetings, uh, counselors, doctors, whatever you need to do for you, you know, truly. Yeah, you can find your way. And I would just also say um, advise them to treat their son or daughter with love. Um, you, you always hear people that are kind of like we were laymen trying to have an A&E television intervention, which just was a disaster. Yeah. But I know that there are soft interventions. You can have a conversation over coffee with a son or daughter. You can um, One tactic that's good is writing on a Hallmark card or a note card, dropping it in a bag of McDonald's that has a number two treatment centers that might fix mm-hmm. fit or crisis numbers or things like that. And it, you're not trying to control it, but just you having information and resources and providing it to them so they can choose it for themselves and treat them with love and compassion. Yeah, that's one of the things I did uh, early on for my sons at Christmas. You know, what do you get them? Right. So what I got them was a wallet. And inside the wallet, I had printed out list of treatment centers, you know, that took their insurance or that were free. And um, homeless shelters, you know, where they could go for meals, those kind of things. And put that in the wallet and told them I love them. And, you know, when they were ready, I'm here to, to help them in whatever way they need with you know with guidelines with well not with guidelines for them but with you know I'm not going to do this for them yeah Yeah. or figure out what it takes for them to get it because that's that is that specific space Mm -hmm. that I think we lose our mind Mm -hmm. what is it going to take for this kid or this person to get it and want to choose sobriety or whatever and we will try to force you know we'll take away their stress and pay their bills or we'll force stress so that they'll be miserable when we are actively trying to cause them to get it or figure it out Mm -hmm. we are as that's I got lost in that. Oh, absolutely. And that, there again, it shows you that we don't have confidence in you to do it. So I'm going to do it for you. How is that really helping anybody if you think about it? And has it ever? No. No. <laughs> so that said, everybody, um, thank you for coming on. Check out Brenda's pages. She is on Facebook or the Addicts Parents United dot www.tapunited.org is the website and it can bring you to all of our pages. That's right. And it's wonderful support and lots of information for any family member, but specifically toward parents. Um, but she's branched out and has a lot. Um, and you can find it through my pages as well. And that said, this has pretty much been Addiction and Recovery 101, in my opinion. <laughs> it's what I would have needed the first year. And I just absolutely cannot thank you enough for coming on. See you next time. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Unhooked Podcast. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode by the guests belong solely to the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the host or any affiliated organization or institution. Annie's books, Unhooked and Unbroken, can be found in Amazon, Cokesbury, BarnesandNoble.com, and wherever books are sold. You can find her work by searching Annie Highwater on Facebook. If you have enjoyed the Unhooked podcast, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. We hope you'll keep coming back to listen to the Unhooked podcast. Unhooked.